this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast today we have a special crossover episode featuring the hindu's pale a weekly podcast that brings together subject experts to discuss issues of public interest in depth and from multiple perspectives In this bonus episode from the Pale podcast we have our host Zubeda Hamid in conversation with Dr Soumya Swaminathan and Dr Giridhar R Babu on if India should be alarmed by China's covid surge We hope you like this episode you can subscribe to Pale by the Hindu from the links in the show notes Welcome to the Hindu's Pale podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. Three years after it first began, COVID-19 has still not gone away. While India had a relatively mild 2022 with regard to the virus and has now administered more than 220 crore doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, our neighboring China is now witnessing an explosion of cases after the easing of its stringent zero COVID policy last month. Can this impact India? Do we need booster shots for more of our population to help protect us? Do COVID-19 precautionary measures need to continue? We examine these questions and more with Dr. Soumya Swaminathan, former chief scientist of the World Health Organization, and Dr. Giridhar R. Babu, professor and head of Life Course Epidemiology, Indian Institute of Public Health, PHFI, Bengaluru. Welcome to the Hindus Pale podcast, Dr. Soumya Swaminathan and Dr. Giridhar Babu. Thank you for being with us today. Hello, Zubeda. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Doctors, 2022 was a relatively mild year for India with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. Last month, however, China began witnessing an explosion of COVID-19 cases after the easing of its zero COVID policy. Could you talk to us about what is happening in China and if this can have an impact on India? Dr. Soumya? Yes, thank you very much. As you know, we've now completed three years. We're into the fourth year of the pandemic. and one thing that's become clear is that this virus is not going away anytime soon in fact if you look at in the longer perspective this is still a new respiratory virus that has only been with human beings for the last 3 years and therefore there's still a lot of opportunity for this virus to infect people and even reinfect people um and still cause a significant amount of morbidity and mortality around the world um what we've also seen is that remarkable capacity of this virus to evolve particularly in response to immune pressures and over the last just one year we've seen what since omicron emerged in november of 2021 we have over 500 described sublineages of omicron and each one has um usually a slight difference from the previous one and some of the subvariants that have had an advantage in terms of increased transmissibility better adaptation to the receptors or immune evasiveness where they're able to overcome the presence of neutralizing antibodies has resulted in continuing 
infection and reinfection in many parts of the world. Now, specifically in China, because they had such a strict zero COVID policy over the last few years, there was very little natural infection that occurred. And the only protection people have is from vaccination. And unfortunately, there in China, there is uh, the rate of vaccination in the over 60s is less than ideal. And it's about 60%. So you still have a large number of the elderly who are not vaccinated. And even if they've received the first dose or second dose, they have not had a booster dose. And therefore, they're still quite vulnerable to getting the infection. And as we know, if you are an older person, you have underlying comorbidities, chronic diseases, the risk of getting severely ill is much, much higher. And that is why there is this concern today that in China, not only can the Omicron subvariants cause huge surges in infection, but this could translate potentially into significant amount of both morbidity and mortality. India, on the other hand, is in a different situation because we have high vaccination coverage, including among the elderly. Uh, what we don't have is very high booster uptake. But on the other hand, there's been a lot of natural infection over the last three years. And therefore, people have built up uh, a good level of protective immunity at the population level. And this should be uh, good enough to prevent an infection surge translating into a hospitalization or a mortality surge. So I think that's the major difference is the immune profile of the populations and particularly the exposure to Omicron, which India had plenty of, and therefore there is some amount of cross-protection that, that should still be present. Dr. Babu, would you like to respond to that? Dr. Swaminathan spoke to us specifically about how we have covered a good number of people with our vaccines, but how our booster coverage is still low. Uh, do you think that we need to work more towards that? Yeah, of course. Uh, just to take one step back, I completely agree with uh, Dr. Swaminathan. I would uh, uh, pro probably simplify uh, from the epidemiology part. Uh, any wave or an outbreak can occur as a result of three important things. How the agent is changing here, the virus, how the human beings are immune, and finally, how the environment uh, is facilitating such kind of transmission. So among the three factors, uh, the advantage is for India and other countries where the host immunity is better, uh, whether because of hybrid immunity or um, relatively uh, expanded uh, vaccine coverage, including uh, probably not much for the boosters. So that's the host. Though the virus is evolving, changing, because the host is uh, a, a resilient uh, factor here, the virus is not able to establish and circulate and cause uh, outbreaks in such populations. But we should remember this is not a static concept. This is a dynamic concept, which means the immunity in the host keeps changing. When you have a virus which is evolving, uh, whether the antibodies are lasting long enough or does the immunological memory is strong enough, to prevent uh, further attacks from the newer avatars of the virus is the question that we need to investigate. So, so far, we have the advantage in terms of hybrid immunity. 
and the weak point is in terms of low boost coverage uh, low booster coverage which needs to definitely be enhanced especially for the elderly where uh, 50% haven't got it and uh, for all the adults uh, last point is although the booster dose is important each day millions of uh, young adults are adding into the population cohort so we should also ensure that they are vaccinated uh, without this this dynamic equilibrium will be lost dr swaminathan speaking about the vaccinations we india has now administered over 220 crore doses of the vaccine and dr babu spoke to us about the need for increased booster coverage as well as ensuring that the young adult population is protected uh do we since we know that the coronavirus keeps on mutating and coming up with new variants of concern uh do we uh, what does scientific evidence tell us about getting heterologous booster shots will we need to keep getting extra shots every year like we do for instance for the flu so this is an important question zubeda but we actually have to base our public health advice on data and dr girdar babu explained the various factors that affect how an individual will respond to the virus infection the first is your own age state of health comorbidities underlying immunocompromising conditions etc and there are many of these which make people more susceptible to severe disease particularly diabetes and hypertension are very common and obesity uh, in middle aged indians so anyone with any of these risk factors is always at going to be at higher risk of getting ill if they catch the infection the second thing is the time since vaccination or infection we know that immunity wanes it wanes faster the older you are and again if you have underlying conditions and if you have a high level of antibodies in your blood neutralizing antibodies then the chances of protecting against infection are higher as time goes by this wanes it can be always boosted so if you get a repeat dose of the antigen in the form of a vaccine dose a booster dose or if it could even be a natural infection then your immune system gets that additional boost and that again protects you for a time to come the third important one we mentioned is a virus and we know that once omicron emerged it became so transmissible that even high levels of neutralizing antibodies were not able to prevent infection completely but we must distinguish between infection and severe disease because what the vaccines did and what particularly our cell mediated immune responses which persist for much longer uh, compared to antibodies which tend to you know go down to lower levels over a few months uh, but the t cells in our body they are the ones that protect us against uh, severe disease so the third dose or the booster dose of the vaccine what it does is really to stimulate the immune response remind the immune system about the antigens and prepare the immune system to face any infection that it may see now how many boosters do we need how often do we need these boosters is it going to be a yearly phenomenon in the future these are still some open minded questions uh, again we need good data because uh, the population profile is different in each country the vaccines that were used are different you mentioned heterologous vaccination from the studies that have been done so far uh, the data points towards an advantage to a heterologous boost which means that if you've had the first two shots with an adenoviral 
vectored vaccine and you get a third shot with a protein subunit or an mRNA vaccine or the other way around, probably what it does, it, it helps to stimulate different arms of the immune system and gives you a very strong, uh, a strong, uh, stronger or, or longer lasting protection. Uh, but there's still limited data, you know, on the different combinations that can be used. But in general, it appears that heterologous vaccination is a good idea. For now, I think what the WHO has said is that people who have these risk factors clearly uh, need their third dose, that's the first booster. But also in many countries, a fourth dose has been recommended for people. And in some countries, this is uh, the you know, original vaccine. In some countries, it's the bivalent or variant adapted vaccine, which has the Omicron antigens in addition to the original viral antigens. But regardless of which uh, is used, I think uh, third dose is important for all age groups, fourth dose perhaps only for those at high risk. But are we going to need this on a yearly basis? I think it's too early to, to definitively have an answer, but it's possible that there will be some groups. You know, the influenza vaccine is also recommended on a yearly basis, particularly for pregnant women, for young children and for the elderly, because these are the groups that can get very ill with influenza and can die. Similarly, there may be a situation where we do recommend uh, COVID uh, yearly or every two years vaccine for some high-risk groups. Dr. Babu, would you like to add to that? Yeah, so uh, it's very well explained by Dr. Swaminathan. I would uh, uh, just like to extend the uh, same discussion. In terms of having a third dose, whether you call it as booster or precautionary dose, has shown evidence almost all over uh, the world, globally, in terms of showing effectiveness against the newer variants, including the Omicron. So which means even though the vaccine are not specific to Omicron, the booster dose has helped to mount an immune response against the newer uh, lineages. Having said that, uh, the evidence for the fourth dose or frequent doses or even an annual uh, vaccination schedule uh, for COVID-19 is not there yet. Uh, so that's where most of the confusion is because there are countries which have done four and preparing for the fifth, and there are countries who do not have enough vaccines to cover the primary vaccination schedule. So when you have such heterogeneity at the global level, each country should have its own uh, evidence base in terms of, for example, in India, the level of uh, antibodies uh, in terms of natural infection, the vaccination coverage, what's the risk here, and what kind of uh, booster uh, schedule is required in India should be decided based on evidence till such kind of global evidence emerges uh, for a definitive answer. The Union Health Ministry has now said that um, states must uh resume genome sequencing of new COVID-19 cases and has asked for daily samples of all positive cases to be sent to the Indian SARS-CoV-2 Genomics Consortium labs. How well are we doing with regard to genomic sequencing in India? Is this something that needs to be stepped up in the light of new variants emerging? Dr. Swaminathan? So genomic sequencing and surveillance has played a very important role in this pandemic. And we've seen over the last couple of years, many countries which had very little limited capacity they stepped up. Uh, and today, in fact, if you look at the public database, GISAID, which is uh, the database that hosts the whole genome sequences of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, they started off as an influenza uh, sequence database, but quickly opened up uh, the database for SARS-CoV-2. 
there are approximately 14 million whole genome sequences. About uh, half of those are from the Omicron strain alone. So that worldwide genomic sequencing has played us a very important role in identifying new variants. And in fact, the last variant, Omicron, was identified very rapidly by South African scientists uh, who worked in sync with public health experts who had identified a cluster of cases with slightly unusual symptoms. And the sequencing indeed showed that the virus had very different mutations and then it was labeled as Omicron, new variant of concern by WHO. All of this happened within two to three weeks of the cluster of cases. So I think when we think about genomic surveillance, it's important to be very strategic about it because it is impossible to sequence uh, every uh, virus that is uh, being diagnosed today because there are you know, millions, hundreds of millions of cases, uh, infections happening around the world. So strategic sequencing, strategic sampling is very important. There needs to be good representativeness from, uh, say, across the different states, because sometimes you can have blind spots. If you look at the data from India, for example, in Sikog, I think over 25% of samples come from the state of Maharashtra alone. So, of course, the capacities of different states are also different. But then if you have very limited samples coming from, let's say, the Northeast or from some other states, then you may actually miss what's going on. So I think geographic representation is important. Uh, percentage of samples being tested, yes, you know, in the beginning, there was a goal of, you know, 5%. I think that was never met. It was uh, closer to 1% of samples. But even that's a good amount, I think, for, you know, an infection that's so common. But then we should be clear about also who we are sequencing. Uh, is it just, you know, being randomly picked? Is it being picked from people who are being admitted with severe disease? There's often a tendency to sequence uh, the strains that are coming in on international travelers. I mean, that may be another good way of, uh, of looking to see if there are any new variants that are, are coming in from other countries. But all of this needs real-time data, not only analysis, collection, but also analysis, reporting, and public health action. Otherwise, it's of no use uh, as an academic exercise. And so I think that's where probably we can do a little bit better in terms of how we are quickly able to use the data that's coming out to take public health action and to inform uh, and to better be able to predict you know, what is likely to happen. Because today, uh, bioinformaticians, molecular biologists have a very good understanding of the mutations on the spike protein and what each mutation actually does for the virus. Some of them increase transmissibility, some of them uh, increase immune evasiveness. And with each new variant of concern, we've seen these properties of the virus grow. And what we're also worried about is, is it going to be more clinically severe? Is it going to make people sick and put them in hospital? So for that, you need a correlation with the clinical characteristics. So sequence data alone without clinical and epidemiological data is not going to be very useful. So really the trick here is for uh, these people from different disciplines to work together to make sure the metadata behind the sequencing data that's collected from the individuals is uh, good. Uh, data about the age, the sex, you know, whether it's a traveler or not, how sick is that individual, uh, underlying comorbidities, and then if possible, the clinical outcomes. Then you see we have a very good uh, idea about how this virus is evolving and how, and also we can correlate it with vaccination status. And you can see whether vaccinated people, you know, are doing 
uh, better or not, and if any particular variant is being able to have more breakthrough infections or is able to cause more severe disease. And uh, often there's a confusion in the minds of the public, uh, thanks to a lot of misinformation being spread on social media platforms, which keep on claiming that there are more vaccinated people getting infected and dying. Well, if you have 90% of a population that's vaccinated, yes, most of the infections will be among the vaccinated. And we know that vaccines are not going to prevent infections 100%. They may reduce the likelihood. But the question then is, are these people recovering after a mild to moderate illness compared to the unvaccinated who are more likely to end up in the hospital with severe disease? And so I think we also need to keep on making sure that the public is properly informed. So communication, uh, science communication, uh, transparent communication of facts and data, which then underlies what we're asking people to do in terms of, you know, why are you asking people to take particular precautions um, or behave in a particular way needs to be based on, you know, uh, what's coming out. So I think the genomic surveillance data can help to inform the public health response. But as I said, it needs to be interpreted along with all the other data that we're, that we're seeing, uh, the clinical and epidemiological data, and it needs to be acted on in a timely manner. Dr. Babu, would you like to respond? How well are we doing with genomic surveillance? Yeah, uh, all the points are, are well covered by Dr. Swaminathan. I'll just extend it to India a scenario in terms of how we are doing. So INSACOG is a consortium of labs, and as a consortium, they're doing really well with their stated objective. But we have to take one step back and then check I have a checklist uh, in terms of what uh, Dr. Swaminathan suggested, and do we have those checkboxes ticked or not? To give you an example, not all the labs are connected to IHIP, India Health Information Platform. Most of the uh, information comes from the labs that are connected to the Health Information Platform. Now, uh, that means uh, we need to connect. Uh, there are several other hospitals and labs that need to be connected to the platform. That's actually strengthening surveillance mechanisms in the country. So without having a robust and resilient uh, surveillance infrastructure and uh, human resources running it, we will not have real-time information. Otherwise, what's going to happen is we are going to do part of the uh, virus sequencing and then try to correlate with uh, mostly in retrospect on whether it caused more infections or not. And that's not going to be useful in real-time public health action. So uh, we are doing well, but there is greater scope for integrating surveillance platforms. Uh, if you just um, see a patient with fever who comes to an outpatient uh, clinic, the same disease can be reported at least in four or five different surveillance platforms. Uh, you have IDSP, you have NVDBCP, you have for um, uh, several other pyroxia of unknown origin uh, being reflected in different surveillance platforms. So what we need to do is integrate surveillance mechanism at the peripheral level, expand the infrastructure, have the consortium, not just the labs, but also of the hospitals and connect it to public health actions. So that's where I think we're in the... Uh, what do you call a uh, right direction, but we need a greater impetus in terms of strengthening uh, the entire mechanisms, having resources made available to them. Doctors, <clears throat> final couple of questions. Dr. Babu, we spoke a little earlier about heterologous booster shots and how there was evidence to show that these perhaps work better as boosters. 
Um, India has now uh, authorized emergency use of the um, nasal vaccine, as well as, of course, we have Corbivax, which is biologically eased uh, protein vaccine. So would you do you think that these need to be used more widely? So far, we know that India has primarily used uh, AstraZeneca's Covishield vaccine as its uh, as, as, as most used vaccine so far. Uh, speaking of evidence uh, from CMC Velo, the studies indicate uh, as a, uh, a, I mean, when you're you, choosing vaccine candidates, heterologous is better. Covivax performs much better. And then comes AstraZeneca's Covishield. Um, so I cannot really speak of uh, evidence stemming from the other uh, vaccines as the booster. Uh, so therefore, I wouldn't uh, uh, comment on it. But what we need is studies to document how the other vaccines can boost and then have a schedule which allows multiple use of uh, you know different vaccines in different settings just to ensure that everybody gets an opportunity for the booster dose. But currently, there's a mismatch. The demand is poor. Therefore, the supply is not consistent. And because supply is not available, there are a few places where people are not able to even get the booster shot. This has to change. Uh, we can't be hoping everybody on their own uh, awareness levels will go and get uh, a vaccine shot um, you know, delivered to them. Such levels of empowering or probably uh, uh, responsibility as for the health uh, doesn't exist at population level, especially when people don't think COVID-19 is uh, a, a serious uh, concern anymore. So I think we need to change the narrative from uh, being all or none. Uh, either you do all restrictions or you don't do anything at all uh, from that kind of a phenomena to sustain and only that kind of information which is required for public health action should be given um, in an informed way and make sure that the booster coverage is expanded. So for booster dose, currently the evidence is uh, for Cobivax and uh, AstraZeneca. I'm sure Dr. Swaminathan will have more insight. Dr. Swaminathan, Dr. Babu spoke to us about the importance of communication and you too had mentioned this uh, about uh, communicating to the public about what is needed to do to be done for public health. So uh, with regard to um, heterologous shots, do you think that India needs to also expand its its its, uh, its bouquet of vaccines that are on offer? So I think we have uh, a number of different uh, vaccines and each of them is based on a different platform. So I think that's a, it's a very good position to be in. And of course, there are also others still in development. I think many of the companies are working on variant adapted vaccines. I am specifically interested in the mucosal vaccines because the hypothesis has been that if you deliver a vaccine to the respiratory mucosa, which is where the infection first occurs, and if you're able to build local immunity, then it may be more effective in actually even preventing infection because we know the injectable vaccines have been very good at preventing severe disease and death but with Omicron, not as good as at preventing infection. The efficacy really went down against infection. A combination of, uh, of an intramuscular or a systemic vaccine and a mucosal vaccine may give that combination of immune responses, both at the mucosal level and at the systemic level, that actually are more protective. But this needs to be proven by doing good studies. This is a hypothesis. And so I think India is in a very good position just now. We still have 
uh, a large proportion of the population that has not received a third dose or a booster dose, we could use the intranasal vaccine, which has now been approved, and follow this cohort of people who receive different, and, and we can do that easily because we have the COVID app where all the data is being aggregated. So it should be fairly straightforward to look at the population and we have huge numbers as well. So that's an added advantage. And you'll find already that there will be people who've had different combinations of vaccines. Many of them might have had, you know, Covaxin three doses, or Covishield three doses, but some of them might have had third dose of some other vaccine. And now we, once we introduce the Bharat Biotech intranasal vaccine, you could also have a significant number taking that dose. We should have different age groups, different you know, demographic uh, profiles, and then follow these people up over a period of time to see what happens with infections, reinfections, but also hospitalization. So this is again where we need to make sure that these different data sets are interlinked so that at the end of the day, you're able to uh, have a good estimate of which vaccine combinations are providing the best information and then follow this cohort over a period of time to answer other questions about the need for regular boosters uh, or other interventions. Uh, the good thing now, of course, is that we also have an uh, Indian generic company that's had a, received a WHO pre-qualification for the nirmitilavir ritonavir combination. This is a very effective drug uh, if given early in the course of infection. Again, it could be one more tool in the armamentarium to deal with particularly people who are at high risk and to prevent them from, from getting ill. So I think we have a good toolbox now with not just vaccines, but also drugs. We know how to treat patients clinically. We know the Measures like masking and improving ventilation, respiratory and hand hygiene are important to prevent the spread of infections. So I think, again, the public needs to be told that it's not one or the other. As Dr. Babu was saying, it's not an all or none. It's a graded approach. You have to estimate your own risk and your, the risk of members of your family and take the precautions and be aware of you know, the recent developments in the science that you know, the government should be communicating regularly about. And that, I think, puts not just India, but a number of other countries in a good position, I think, in 2023 to deal with whatever this virus, whatever surprises it may have for us. Right. Last question, Dr. Babu. Uh, you have, uh, both of you all have told us earlier that one of the reasons for China's surge is its uh, zero COVID policy and its extremely stringent lockdowns, um, <clears throat> since many people could have been unexposed to the virus. Uh, and we seem to be better placed in India with regard to this because we had a Delta wave alongside our vaccinations as well. So uh, would you say that there are no real concerns with regard to another surge in cases or another wave in India per se? And But do we still need to continue to be masked uh, and taking other COVID-19 precautions through this year as well? well there are a couple of um, remarks before I give the answer. The first one is, if anybody is uh, very certain about what the virus uh, is going to behave and whether infection waves or mortality waves occur in a given country or not, in a definitive manner, I think they're mostly adventurous because uh, this has proved time and again that all the predictions have gone wrong, including the predictions of mortality with the current surge in the US and UK. Uh, having said that, 
uh, we need to remember the basic principles of epidemiology uh, that uh, this is a, a constant and dynamic interplay of three important factors, uh, which is, as I said earlier, host, the agent, and the environment. We need to ensure all the components within this are addressed uh, in a uh, sustainable, uh, dynamic fashion so that uh, people don't actually get into complacency. That's important to be proactive. Uh, whether there's a real concern uh, from the existing uh, lineages in the China or elsewhere, it doesn't appear so uh, for hospitalization and death, but there will be a greater risk uh, when a new variant develops. And we have uh, said several times that more the opportunity for the virus to circulate, more are the chances for the errors, and therefore the chances of getting a new lineage might be uh, there. This, this is a real chance. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, looking at our own uh, preparedness, uh, last time around March, uh, uh, when the second wave uh, had not happened, there were many modelers who were saying uh, there will not be second wave in India. And what happened uh, later on, we witnessed, whereas there were clear signs in late February that second wave uh, was due in India and uh, in Mumbai and Delhi picked up. So what we need to be sure is not to panic, uh, be proactive and uh, follow the signs in terms of understanding where the new clusters are developing, what kind of symptoms are there, what is the genomic sequencing of that, and then what is the population immunity status level there. And from there, take it the next step in terms of whether we should have more stringent or not. Currently, there's more of panic, uh, less of uh, a systematic strengthening uh, that is happening in most countries. And uh, panic should not drive uh, pandemic control. Thank you so much, both of you, for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you.